Um, we've been going through the Ten Commandments section of the Catechism, which is the final section. And you'll remember that over the last few weeks, we've looked at the uh, First Commandment and the Second Commandment. Now we're going to turn to the Third Commandment. Um, these initial commandments, remember the first four, deal with what? Our relationship with God, right? Uh, these first four commandments. So um, uh, they deal with our relationship with God, and they're very, um, very keen on that. Um, because remember, it's in the context of, a, of the, the living relationship with God that the people of God have that the commandments are, uh, are, are kept. Um, it's something that we, we often don't think about, but um, uh, you know, there, there is such a thing afloat um, in, in uh, um, ethics, which, which we call a deontological ethics, meaning that it's sort of like, it's like this. Well, you should do it because it's right. <laughs> That's it. That's all you need to know. Just do it. You got a duty, keep it, shut up, and don't worry about it, right? Um, there's a problem there. What's the problem? What's that? How do you know it's right? Is there an accounting for who we human beings are? What we're made for? Nah, just keep the rules, right? Um, is there an accounting for what our final end is as human beings? Not at all. Um, so Christian... The Christian understanding of the commandments is always should be um, that we're made for the life of God. We're made for eternal glory with God um, in this blessed vision of God, um, which Hans spoke so wonderfully of last week, um, to, to behold the beauty of God for eternity is what we're made for, and to behold his glory. Um, and without this, what, what happens to the commandments? All right, I guess I'll just, you know... Worship no other gods. It's sort of like awful. Right? Um, but, but we have to have this image of glory in front of us um, because otherwise we start to think that, that um, God is sort of a, a, a brutal taskmaster. Um, and that is not why the commandments are given. If you think even about the, the context in which the commandments are given, um, which, is, which is this, quite simply, um, a God who calls his people out of slavery in Egypt to worship him in a land he gives them without cost, um, where he will dwell with the people. There's a wonderful scene, and I've, I've spoken of it in recent weeks, um, where uh, Moses, <laughs> the, after the Ten Commandments are initially given, Moses, remember, brings them down from Mount Sinai, and what does he find? He saw them worshiping a golden calf, <laughs> and, and it doesn't go well from there. And, and, and in fact, when God meets w with Moses again, God basically says to Moses, hey, you know, let's just kill them all, and then you and I will go into the land, and I'll make you a nation, and it'll all go fine. And Moses steps up in intercession for the people and says, hey, you know, the reality of it is that there's no other nation that has God go with them. So unless you want to be shamed for that, right, unless you want that on you, uh, you got to, the people have to go with it. And essentially Moses says, we're a package deal. And essentially says, too, what makes, what makes us great as a people is not the law. Moses understands this. What makes, what makes the people great? The living presence of God with them. 
And this comes full circle in the incarnation, does it not? And this is why Jesus says, I come not to abolish the law and the prophets, but to what? Fulfill them. Okay? This doesn't mean that he comes to, uh, to sort of be the perfect law keeper. Because if you know anything about Jesus, it's like, well, you know, how's that add up? Right? The Pharisees are constantly accusing him. Well, you're breaking the law. You're breaking the Sabbath. You're breaking all these laws. Jesus is concerned primarily with the keeping of the law, which is inherent in being with the people. Um, so keep that in mind. I think that's, that's essential. And that's not to say Jesus is not without sin. He is without sin. Um, but, but it's the great gift of the incarnation is God with us, Emmanuel. Okay? Um, which, by the way, um, for the Christian is what enables a proper life before God. It's, it's not just sort of like, oh, you have all these rules, you should keep them. What is it? It's the living presence of God with his church. It's the living presence of Christ within the Christian um, that enables this, this, this upright life. So I want to bring you back to that. So let's turn to the third commandment. Um, we've gone through basically the first two commandments, which are, you shall have no other gods before me, and you shall not make any carved images, uh, graven images, um, or any idol. Remember that idols are... Um, Idols are very common in the ancient world. Um, uh, most kind of uh, ancient households would have household deities that they would keep on their mantelpiece, you know, and they would worship them, and and uh, and it was a way of um, of uh, many of them are fertility cult gods and goddesses, um, and uh, and the commandment here is quite clear that that those graven images which follow the likeness of things that are in heaven above or in the earth below. Are, are to be abandoned um, for true worship. Um, because well, the simple, simple answer for this is because God cannot be manipulated right, into doing what we want. That's not how it works. The other thing I'd say, too, is that, um, is that the, the problem is not necessarily making um, carved images in the likeness of God. Um, that is a problem. The, the problem is making God in our image. Do you see the problem there? It's because God is not like us. Um, if anything, we are made in the likeness and image of God. That's the truth that Scripture holds forth. Okay. What is the third? This is a, a question 281. What is the third commandment? The third commandment is, you shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain. What does it mean not to take God's name in vain? All forms of God's name are holy, and those who love him should use his name with reverence, not lightly or for selfish purposes. Um, the name of God given in Scripture is, is a sign of his holiness. You'll remember that the name of God is given where in Scripture? It's like on Mount Sinai, well in advance of the giving of the commandments. So this burning bush speaks to Moses, or the, God speaks to Moses out of the bush. Um, and what is, it that he, what is it that Moses is told before this happens? Moses? Yeah, take off your shoes, for the place on which you are standing is holy. Um, it's set apart. Um, the removal of shoes is to say, don't track anything into this holy place. Um, I don't know if you grew up in a house where shoes are taken off. Like this has been a huge. I grew up in a house where you just left shoes on. Who cares, you know? But my wife just hates it. She's like, "You got to take your shoes off. Take your shoes off," <laughs> and because stuff gets tracked in, and you know, with six kids, stuff gets tracked in. Um, but but it's to say that 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 
the place of God's dwelling is holy, and it's and it's um, and it's marked out because in, in Scripture, Mount Sinai is a place where God's name is spoken. Now keep in mind that in the temple, God's name is spoken only once, once a year, um, in the Holy of Holies on the Day of Atonement. The high priest goes into the goes into the holy place and speaks the name of God once, um, because the name of God is holy, and therefore it is to be pronounced in a holy place. And this is why, actually, in the Second Temple period, uh, it became the habit of um, of scribes to stop writing or stop even intoning the name of God uh, so clearly. It's one of the great causes of confusion in the in the world is, uh, or one of the great causes of confusion in Scripture is that, that, um, that the, the vowel markings in the Hebrew kind of say another word, which is Adonai, right? Not the, not the, not the name of God. Um, but this name, this name is holy, and, and it's given, keep in mind, why is the name given to Moses? Remember, Moses asks a very simple question. Okay, you're sending me to Egypt to get the people out of slavery. Who shall I say sent me? Because the Egyptians have a bunch of gods, and they're going to want to know which God sent me. So which one do I say? And God gives his name. He says, I, tell them I am sent you. Which, which, which is to say that, the, that this is the God who is being, its, being itself. Um, the God who is. Um, and that this God is to be loved and to be reverenced and, and cannot be taken lightly. How can you use God's name irreverently? In false or half-hearted worship, oppression of the poor, and conflicts cloaked with divine cause, people use God's name without reverence for him and only to further their own goals. Um, This phrase, in vain, refers not only to taking the name of God for ourselves and for our own purposes, but, but simply to just sort of throw it around. Um, this to throw around this name in a haphazard way. So in false or half-hearted worship, um, to, uh, to worship in a way that does not befit the holiness of God. Um, oppression of the poor is, is, seems to be thrown in there, doesn't it? I can, I can guarantee you this is not unintentional. <laughs> it's right there for a reason. Um, Think about what, what, uh, what Jesus says, Matthew 18, about, about um, you know, I was naked and you what? You clothed me. I was hungry and you fed me. I was thirsty and you gave me drink. That there's something about denying basic dignities to the poor that is actually a kind of blasphemy. Would you not see that in Matthew 18? It is. Um, Conflicts cloaked with divine cause. Going to an unjust war, saying that God supports you in this unjust war. Um, And through all this, people use God's name without reverence, um, without considering even for a moment God's holiness, um, and only to further our own goals. Um, I would say that this this is an increasing problem as people... Uh, cloak their own agendas in kind of Christian language, right? Um, this is an ongoing uh, thing, and we wouldn't normally call it 
using the Lord's name in vain, but it happens all the time. Um, where we'll say, and forgive me if this hits too close to home, but this is a Christian university. And then you go off and do all kinds of things that shouldn't happen in a Christian university, right? Where, where the name of God is taken in vain. Um, how can you use God's name lightly? Profanity, careless speech, broken vows, open sin, and meaningless exclamations all cheapen God's name. They treat God's name as empty of the reality for which it stands. Well, God's name isn't empty, is it? It's the idols that are empty. Um, it's all the other gods that are empty. And they have empty promises and they're empty um, in, a, in a wide variety of ways. But, but God is not empty. And the people, especially if you look at the people in the wilderness, um, they should know above all else that God's name is not empty of power and promise. I mean, think about it. It's by this name that they've been brought out of Egypt. It's by God's name that they've been uh, taken through the Red Sea. It's by God's name that they're fed in the wilderness. Um, so they know that God is not empty. God is not an empty God. Um, and to speak of him in an empty way uh, is, is a betrayal. Um, and this is the reason, I think, uh, you know, this is part of this getting to a deontological ethic, right? It's like, well, why shouldn't I use profanity? Well, just don't. Right, because it's bad. Right? <laughs> well, as Christians, we got more to say about that. Which I think I think we should say this: we say we human beings are made with the capacity for expression through language. It's a sacred act when we speak, and to speak in an empty way, to speak in a way that is not in, that is unintentional or careless, is a problem. It's a problem of the soul. Um, we should also say we are made, our mouths, our very mouths, right now, just a second, our mouths are made to, to, to praise God eternally. I mean, this is the wonderful thing that we should, we, should, we should think about is that our bodies are made to praise God forever. Um, the body which you now inhabit will be raised for that purpose. Um, and so when careless speech exits our lips, these are the same lips that will speak God's praise for eternity. Um, so keep that in mind. Okay. What about the action? What's that? What about acting? Ah, acting or writing. Um, well, I should say the Christian tradition when it comes to acting is very complicated. Uh, and one of the reasons that it was complicated in the early, in the early centuries was that um, actors had to say certain things and take on certain personae that would, that would be problematic. And so, in fact, um, a number of Church fathers basically say, well, if you're going to become a Christian, you've got to give up acting. You clearly can't be an actor and be a Christian. Um, recent attitudes have been a little more lax about it. <laughs> say, well, it's not really what's going on, um, and, and to draw attention to the arts. Um, but I would say this, I would, and I would say this strongly. I'd say that we must always be aware in any profession of the kind of... Um, the kind of dissipation that can often take place. Would you not agree? Right? I mean, in any kind of job, you're asked to sacrifice principles or to sacrifice what is right for the sake of merely keeping your job. Um, you know, and that's become the case increasingly, right? As, um, as people are basically being asked to say things they don't believe um, or uh, being asked to participate in activities they can't support. Um, in good conscience. 
Um, and so I think, I think we have to be uh, careful about that. Actors especially, right? Because you never know if you're in a role, right? Um, what you might be asked to do. Uh, so it's, it's a very important question that you ask. I think, um, I think, I think the key is that um, Christians will always understand that our, that our, our um, well, we'll understand our voices in exactly the way in which they're meant, right? Um, to speak of God's glory forever. Um, so we have to ask that question. How do, how do our voices, how do our minds, how do our use of words um, add up to that? All right, how can you honor God's name? I honor and love God's name in which I was baptized by keeping my promises and by upholding honor in relationships, charity in society, justice in law, uprightness in vocation, and holiness in worship. Um, it is possible, greatly possible, to honor and love God's name, um, but I love how this puts it. We're baptized into God's name. If you think about this, and Christine especially, you should think about this, right? You, it's not just like, hey, you, I baptize you in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. What is it? It's Abby. I baptize you in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. It's Joel. I baptize you in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Why? Because there's a transaction of name going on here where um, you give God your name and he gives you a name. Um, note the transaction that takes place in the covenant with Abraham. What is it that God says of his name? I will make your name what? Great. Um, so this naming is important. And when we're baptized, it's, we're baptized in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Um, and this is to say that there's been a, a sacramental exchange in which the name of God is inscribed upon you. If you read Revelation, it's, often, it's just amazing how, how the, the name of God is written on people and marked on them. How do we keep this? Well, by keeping promises. Um, if you're going to make a vow, right? Jesus talks about this in the Sermon on the Mount. Let your yes be yes and your no, no. Why? Well, because to be, a, to be a person who takes any word seriously at all and to break vows and break promises is a problem. So, so don't make vows, right? <laughs> what does he say? Just if you're going to do it, say yes. If you're not, say no. It's actually very simple. I try to teach my kids this and, and it's, you know, it's getting there eventually. Um, it's just, just to say, all right, if I have time, no, no, don't do that. Say yes, I'll do it. If you can't do it, say no. Um, this has to be trained into us. Um, by upholding honor in relationships. Um, you know, there's, there's a kind of thing around today where we're ha we can be often very happy to gossip about our best friends um, for our own gain. Uh, to uphold charity in society. What does this mean? Oh, we're, almost, we're forgetting this in politics, right? It's like we can be as uncharitable as we want to be because it's a sign of our, of our hardcoreness in whatever political position we hold. Um, and Christians have always striven to be charitable in their speech, especially in society. Um, to speak charitably, 
to Hanstelman, um, to uphold justice in the law, um, where if a law says, this is what you shall do, then you do it, um, um, if, if you can in good conscience. Um, uprightness and vocation, what does this mean? Oh, this is good. This is really important. So if you're a university professor, how should you speak? Not as one who's got a great tenure-track job, right? But as what? As one who serves God with words. As one who serves God in that vocation. Um, if you work for the government, how should you, how should you do it? I know there's one government employee in here, at least. As, as one who, who has a calling uh, to serve in that role, um, who takes that role seriously, um, who views themselves. I love what um, Paul says about this. Do your absolute best to, to, to present yourself as one who is approved. Um, not by man, but by God. And as one who's working for God and not for man. And holiness in worship. Um, and this has been something that um, in a lot of, a lot of uh, American Christianity has, has really fallen apart. Um, in fact, it's part of the problem today is that uh, many young people have not been exposed to any Christian tradition that takes serious worship seriously. <laughs> so they think, eh, you know, God sort of sits there in heaven and does his thing. Completely unconcerned with us. Um, and, uh, and, and he's become a sort of uh, a neutered God. Um, and this is, a, this is a distinct problem. All right. So shall we move forward? I actually, I actually will say this about, about what we see, especially in Anglican prayer book worship, is this. And I love this. It's that my children cannot doubt for a second, even if they only catch 10% of what happens here in church on Sunday, and I think that would be a good Sunday, right? <laughs> they cannot doubt what we actually think about God, what we actually believe, because it's presented often and consistently. Um, that's very important to me. All right, what is the fourth commandment? The fourth commandment is, remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. What does it mean to keep the Sabbath day? Sabbath is from the Hebrew Shabbat, which means rest. God commanded Israel to set apart each seventh day following six days of work for rest and worship. Um, we see this uh, Sabbath day in the very uh, account of creation, where God works uh, in establishing creation and speaking creation into existence for how long? For six days, and on the seventh day he rests. Of course, there could be a great, wonderful debate about, is that a literal day or what? And I'm not going to address it. <laughs> Sorry to disappoint you. Um, but, but the givenness is this, that, that God has entered into a rest from all his labors. And when we rest on the seventh day, we enter into the rest of God. Now, this is the question. And I think there might be a, there might be a question to clarify this. Oh, yes, we will we'll answer it later. Um, but it's to say that this, this day is to be set apart from work, from labor. Um, and the Jewish people today actually keep this uh, commandment actually very, very rigorously. Um, 
one of my favorite things that's poke around on Amazon, uh, this, there's a little section where you can see Sabbath helpers. Um, <laughs> there are little things like light switch covers that keep you from messing with light switches <laughs> on, on Sabbath. <laughs> Have you seen these? They're incredible. They just stick onto the light switch and basically keep you from doing anything with it on a Sunday because, or on a, on a Saturday because you're not supposed to. Um, Many people have been to Israel, and they note how on Shabbat, uh, the elevators stop at every floor. Why? So that you don't have to press the button to get to the floor you want to get to, because that would be work. <laughs> and you can take a walk, but you can't press the button. Um, all of this is to say that, that this is a very serious command. Um, what does it do, though? How does it function? Yes, I think it helps us keep our minds on God, for sure. Go ahead. Yep. Did anybody read this, this wonderful article, I think it was in The Atlantic, about the kind of malaise of millennial life where you're just always working and so little tasks like sending a package through the mail become this incredibly daunting and horrible thing. And I know, like, I'm right on the edge of being a millennial, so please bear with me. Um, but it's, it's basically like everything becomes difficult because, and, and I thought this article was very insightful because it said, because you're burned out. You're completely burned out. And I thought, you know, what's the Christian response to this burnout? It's really simple. It's Sabbath. Keep a Sabbath, and you won't have to worry about it. Uh, because just offering that one day, here's what it does. It sends a very unambiguous message to your body and to your brain that you are not made for endless toil. And it's amazing what happens when you take it seriously. Um, so Sabbath, Sabbath rest is important. Why should you rest on the Sabbath? I rest as Israel was to rest because God rested on the seventh day from his work of creation. The Sabbath rest brought rhythm to life, work, and worship, freedom from slavery to unending labor, and awareness that God is Lord of all time, including mine. Oh, I love that. This is one of the best answers in the catechism. Um, I rest as Israel was to rest because God rested on the seventh day from his work in creation. Okay. Um, and this is why I would say to take a Sabbath day is a thing of, of cosmic significance. Um, it's built into the way that our, our world operates, um, even though we don't often think of that. Here's, here's something that I want to offer to you biblically. Um, biblically speaking, uh, rituals like the Sabbath day are meant to sanctify all of life. Um, even the most strange rituals of Jewish life were meant to draw uh, attention to the sanctity of the household, of things like the family, uh, to draw a literal connection between the temple and the home. Um, and one of the things that's sadly been lost is in this busy, busy, busy modern age, these links between the church and the home are lost um, because Let's just be honest about it. A number of you are going to go home and you're going to mow the lawn. A number of you are going to go home and you're going to open your email and start answering emails. Um, and this link between the church and the home is lost um, when that happens. The Sabbath rest brought rhythm to life. 
Oh God, we need that, right? If, if, you should, if you take away nothing from today, take away the fact that you need rhythm in life. Um, you can't be operating on one beat the whole time because it gets really old over time. Um, it's got to be changed up. We're inherently creative people, and to have, uh, because we're made in the image of God, and to have one way that we live constantly, you'll burn out. You'll absolutely burn out. Um, and I would say, in addition to this, Sabbath isn't just about one day a week. What is it? It's about when you feel like you're on the verge of exploding because it's too much and the pressures are too high, rest. It seems so counterintuitive because you're told by the whole world around you. When you're stressed out, what do you need to do? Get to work. There's a sign that you're not getting enough done and you need to get it done. Okay. The Sabbath rest brought rhythm to life, work, and worship. This is regular worship. Freedom from slavery to unending labor an awareness that God is Lord of all time, including mine. The Sabbath rest was a sign. I think this is really key in Scripture. The Sabbath rest is a sign of the freedom of God's people. Freedom from unending labor, freedom from slavery, but above all else, the freedom uh, to serve God faithfully. Um, and if you read in the law, is Sabbath just an every week, week thing? No, it's like, it's like every seven years there's a Sabbath for the land. Every 50 years there's another year of Jubilee. Okay. Cattle rest, right? All the livestock rest, the land rests. There's rest is to be built in. And in fact, uh, as, any, as anyone who grew up in an agrarian world knows, right? What do you do with your field after a few years of growing corn in it? Anyone? You let it sit. This is the absolute best thing you can do. Just let weeds set in and let it grow, let whatever grow there. It's fine. You just plow it up and all, that, all those nutrients will be there and it'll be great. Let your, let your field lay fallow on occasion. Um, and in fact, this brings greater productivity, not lesser. Um, we know this from extensive study that people who take regular rest and regular vacations are more productive, not less. Um, so there you have it. I mean, I've even been reading lately about people who stringently keep a 40-hour work week no matter when those hours fall. If you can get it all done in three days, do it because you'll be more productive, not less. Um, it's amazing, amazing stuff. All right. And it's an awareness is brought about that God is Lord of all time, including mine. Um, and this is why I'd say as Christians, you know, we'll say more about this. We're not here on a Saturday. We're here on a Sunday. Why the Sunday? It's the day of the resurrection. That's really important. But it's also it's the first day of the week. So I love this. For the Jew, it was tacked on at the end of your week is this day of rest. Okay, great. Cool. Early Christians kept the Sabbath too. But early in the morning before they went to work on a Sunday, what did they do? They went and kept the church's liturgy early on a Sunday morning, early on the first day of the week. Why? So the very first thing they did in a week was worship. It's really important. Um, where do you learn about the holiness of time? In creation, through the sun, moon, and stars. In the law, through Israel's sacrificial calendar, and in the church's liturgy, patterned after temple worship. 
I learned that time belongs to God and is ordered by him. I love this. Do you know why Easter is in three weeks? How Easter's set as a date in the Western calendar? Yeah, it's, get this, it's the first Sunday after the first full moon following the vernal equinox. So when the days are neither long nor short, you look for the moon to come, full moon, and the following Sunday is Easter. Now, of course, you can't anticipate that very well, so you need, a, you need astronomers and stuff to keep track of it. But you should have noticed this. The last full moon happens literally the day before the spring equinox. I was watching it and thought, geez, just another day and it'd be Easter, you know, this weekend. <laughs> it just didn't happen. And that's why this year's Easter is about as late as it can possibly be because it's, it's kept that way. Um, and I find this is just, uh, hear this, right? Like when you go into Target over the next few weeks or HEB and you see all the Easter stuff around, just consider this for a moment that we human beings are still doing something based on a lunar calendar, because we can't get away from the fact that there's rhythm built into creation and built into the cosmos, and we have to do something about it, right? So this is really important. I think this is something I, I just love. I, I, get, I get all excited about it. During Holy Week, when the moon comes out, I'm like, yes, <laughs> here we are. You know, it's just, it's an amazing thing. Um, so this is, this is to say that um, we, we see these patterns in the sun and the moon and the stars, I mean, just the fact that it's slowly getting warmer, you wouldn't believe it this morning, but it's slowly getting warmer, um, is a sign that we're, we're, a, we're the people that live according to rhythm and creation. Um, we see it in the stars. Um, and the law bears this out, right? Because the law has all of these references to festivals that are to be kept. Um, and we learn this, that, and I, I think this is really an amazing thing. I, I'm not going to come right out and say it, that I think... Uh, Part of being faithful to the commandments is to keep a liturgical calendar because I'm, I'm not a legalist. But I do think that it is one of the ways that you can keep a Sabbath and, and be faithful to this commandment. Um, well, think about it for a moment. One of the things I've come to appreciate with, with, with keeping a, a liturgical calendar is this. There's time set aside for everything. There's time to remember that you are dust, and to dust you shall return. There's time to remember the Lord's crucifixion. There's time to remember on Palm Sunday. Um, there's, there's time for remembering the resurrection. Fifty days, in fact, of remembering the resurrection. Um, there's time to remember the day of Pentecost. There's time for everything. And it's set apart for us. Um, and this teaches us something, that all of time is ordered by God. It, it, all of time exists within the economy of God. Um, so it's an important thing to keep in mind. All right. Did Jesus keep the Sabbath? As its Lord, Jesus both kept and fulfilled the Sabbath. We know he did. Um, how did he keep the Sabbath? This isn't a question in the Catechism. This is another question. <laughs> we know what he did on the Sabbath, right? Um, first... He, we know that he went into the synagogue, as was his custom, and read from the Scriptures. Okay? Um, the Gospel authors are clear that this was his custom, going into the synagogue and reading from Scripture. Um, so uh, it's, it's clear that um, on the Sabbath, there ought to be some reading of Scripture. Um, 
What else did he do on the Sabbath? More scandalous things, of course. Healed. He healed the sick on the Sabbath. Um, that there, there are greater demands upon us than merely refusing to work. Um, and in fact, this exists within Jewish tradition as well, that emergencies do, can compel you to leave it behind, to leave behind the Sabbath observance. Um, and Jesus clearly believes and clearly acts as though there are some things that will put the pause button on Sabbath observance um, because there are weightier matters. Um, so Jesus did keep and fulfill the Sabbath. Um, and, uh, and it's something that, that we need to be reminded of uh, especially as the temptation that exists around us is, well, you don't really need a Sabbath, right? The, the great virtue in our culture today is work, 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 work. That's how you have value as a human being. How does Jesus bring Sabbath as God's eternal, re- eternal gift to you? Jesus now offers himself as the source of my true rest from the slavery of sin, from the wasteland of human striving, and from Satan's legacy of futile toil, pain, disease, and death. I love this. Oh. Um, Jesus reminds us um, that um, we are not made for the Sabbath. What's the, what's the truth? That the Sabbath is made for us. The Sabbath is a gift. It's an eternal gift. Um, and Jesus offers himself as a true source of rest. Um, you know, in Scripture, in the New Testament, there's this under, and in the Old as well, there's this understanding of entering into God's rest. This rest on the seventh day. Um, which actually, this is the fun part, is an eternal rest. Um, more about this in a bit. Um, rest from the slavery of sin. Rest from the wasteland of human striving. Um, it's really unfortunate, I think, that, that Christians used to actually um, have it in their social consciousness to deeply oppose things like a seven-day work week. I mean, we used to pass laws about that if we were in charge, right? Just say, no, we're not doing that. Um, do you know that the entire advent of the Sunday school movement happened because Christians were intent on, on making the most of days that, that little children working in factories had off? Like, bring them in out of the street. Educate them. Um, and yet we tend to just exhibit those behaviors constantly. And I'm not saying be a Pharisee about it. I'm saying have some consciousness about these days. Um, And from Satan's legacy of futile toil, pain, disease, and death, Satan's legacy is about about hard work till the day you die. Anything to numb you from the reality that surrounds you. If work will do it, great. Um, And there have been times in my life where I have just worked myself to the bone. And I've been of no good to anybody. Um, Most especially my family, but also to you. Um, Got to take that rest. All right, so let's move on. What does it mean that a Sabbath rest remains for the people of God? When the church is perfected in Christ, all believers will be completely free from sin and its course and established in an eternity of love, adoration, and joy. This will be our unending Sabbath rest. Um, Listen, as we head into Easter, 
just just let this soak in, okay? That that there's so much about on Holy Saturday, all of the uh, all of the collects and all of the liturgies speak to Jesus entering into total conformity to the law by resting. It's just an amazing thing that, that people see not death. They, what do they see? They see rest implicit in being laid in a tomb. And that this rest actually continues on and on and on. So that um, the, the great addition of, of, of Christians to this is that um, we not only think about a Sabbath day, but think about an eternal Sabbath that's affected on this seventh day, on this, on this uh, eighth day. Um, so we enter into that. And we remember that we'll all be completely free from sin and its curse. Because remember this, one of the curses of sin is what? Oh. Yeah, by the spread of your brow. You know, in toil, you'll eat the fruit of the ground. In toil. That's why uh, you know, pain in childbirth is wrapped up in the, in the curse as well. And that's why we call it, what do we call it? Labor. Because it is, it's labor, it's pain, um, it's, it's, it can be misery. Um, we're free from that and establishing an eternity of love, adoration, and joy, which will be our unending Sabbath rest. How do you celebrate this Sabbath rest with the church now? I join in the church's weekly worship and participation in God's heavenly rest, which brings order, meaning, and holiness to the other six days of the week. Um, if you're suffering from haphazard desires and haphazard feelings about your work and haphazard uh, uh, affections with regard to, listen, if you feel stretched out between your home and your work, anybody? Like, you know, it, it, I'll just share this with you. This is a moment of total honesty, okay? Several years ago, I got a letter or an email from the senior warden of the parish I served. He said, we're very concerned about you. He should have been concerned. I was a mess. And, and he said, you're not, you don't seem to be working enough, which was not true. Uh, you don't seem to be uh, uh, spending enough time visiting people in the church, also true. Um, and you don't spe seem to be spending enough time at home, also true. What was I doing? The, my honest response to this email was like, what do you think I do? Um, and I was really angry about it. Uh, but, but there was a point wrapped up in this, which is that a certain amount of disorder had crept in on my life, and the disorder was showing itself in the fact that I was working 80 to 90 hours a week for the church. I was miserable. My family was miserable. I was a wreck. I had nothing to give anybody. So I was avoiding pastoral interactions. Why? Because I had nothing to give. And I'd come home, and I'd sit in my chair, and I would just be like, I was nothing to my family. Um, I have repented of this. It's a long process. You know, I'm, a, I'm a workaholic by nature. But I will say to you that one of the most important things I did was say, I'm taking more time off. And so my day off became sacred. So I'll tell you this. If you write me an email on a Thursday afternoon, you're not going to get a response till Monday at the earliest. Why? Because Friday's a day off, Saturday, I'm usually prepping for all of this, and it's important, and I'm getting kind of my mind straight and getting a lot of things in order. And Sunday is, Sunday's a work day, man, like, and no emails are getting answered. 
Monday now, I'll say this. My spiritual director told me last summer, he said, you've got to have another day. I said, another day of rest? It's like, yeah, you're killing yourself. You got to have another day to just read a book and pray. I said, okay. So ever since, Monday has been a personal day of Sabbath rest and refreshment and prayer and reading. Um, I go to morning prayer and then I just crack a book and I read, try to read all day long. It's been awesome. And you might say, when do you work, Father? I was like, Tuesday through Thursday and Sundays, I'm busting it. But on Friday, Saturday, and Monday, oh, I got rest. And so I'm keeping myself stridently and stringently to about a 40-hour work week, maybe a bit more. Sometimes it'll expand to 50, right? But what do you get out of all that? You get a priest who's not stressed out. You get a priest who can care for you. You get a priest who doesn't, who doesn't just say, the last thing I want to do is be with people today. And you also get one who reads books. It's an amazing thing, right? Um, those of you who are faculty or going to be faculty at a university, take your, take your sabbaticals, right? Get extra sabbaticals. Junius isn't here. Get extra sabbaticals. Get a bunch of them, right? Why? Because you'll be, you'll be of more use to your students down the road. You'll have something to give them, more than just your doctoral dissertation, right? You'll have a lot to give. Um, because, because there's a lot more to life than, than just endless toil. Um, the other thing that I think I'll just say, we've got to be better as a culture about taking actual vacations. Um, spending two weeks with your family in whatever city you come from is not a vacation. <laughs> That's a visit to family. Uh, get time where it's just you getting away. Um, for our family, that's meant we take an annual family retreat every year. And that we've, we've, we've covenanted as a family to do this, um, where we're going to be away, and we're going to pray, and we're going to rest, and we're going to get time together. Um, and you might say, golly, you seem to have a great life. It's like, no, I've had to work at this. Um, I've actually, and one of the things I've had to get over is, that, is feeling like I'm failing you by taking a vacation. Because my first instinct says, golly, they're not going to get anything out of me if I'm doing that constantly. Okay, um, one more. Let's just, finish it. Let's just finish up this section so I can feel good about it. All right. Why does the church worship on the first day of the week rather than the seventh? The church worships on the first day of the week in remembrance of the resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ on the first day of the week. Okay, so this has been the cause of a lot of consternation, uh, most normally in the, the Seventh-day Adventist tradition where they say, well, the Sabbath is not a Sunday, the Sabbath is Saturday, so keep worship on the Saturday. It's like, okay, well, we have no beef there. The problem is that, um, uh, and I think this is, this is what I'd say uh, clearly is that, um, well, <laughs> We won, so uh, <laughs> we Christians won. We won the whole West, so we get to have Sundays now too. That's why the weekend, historically, that's why the weekend is Saturday and Sunday in the West. It's because Christians kept both Saturday and Sunday, both the last day of the week and the first day of the week. Um, so all that is to say, we keep the Sunday because it is, a, it is a celebration built into the calendar of the Lord's resurrection. Um, this is actually particularly poignant in Lent because uh, right now it's not Lent, actually. We're in Lent, 
But the Sundays don't count on those 40 days. They don't count at all. Um, they are actually days in which you should feast. Um, so whatever Lenten discipline you took up, you're free from it for today, uh, which is always a great, a great relief. But I want to remind you of this because um, for the ancient church particularly, um, this worship on the, on, on the first day of the week was so important. Um, and they gathered together, and we see this in the New Testament, in the Acts of the Apostles. They gathered together on the first day of the week, um, and early in the morning as well, um, before they went to work, because it was, a, it was a, a day in which they remembered that they had been bought from sin and bought out of slavery uh, to endless toil to enter into the rest of God and the eternal rest of God. Um, and, uh, and this is what we remember in in the resurrection, is that this, this rest doesn't end. It continues on forever. That's all for today. Thank you.